I was told this morning that someone is excited that I'm preaching because I typically don't preach very long. And I think in the nine o'clock service, I preached for an hour. So good luck. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to turn it to Matthew 21, beginning in verse 33. We'll be looking at verses 33 through 46, and I'll be reading that in its entirety before we jump into it. Matthew 21, verse 33, and following God's Word says to us, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owners, or when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls On this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of God for us this morning. When I was driving back from northern New Mexico last night, in the middle of the mountains with No distractions of a cell phone because there's no reception. And as I was praying through and about this text, it it hit me like a ton of bricks just how careful and particular Jesus is with this parable and the other two parables around it. It's amazing to think of how Matthew has recorded this for us to learn from. Last week, I, I preached from a parable of two sons where There's one son who says that he's not going to do the will of the father and then ultimately repents and does the will of the father. And there's a second son who says he will do the will of the father and then ultimately rebels and flees from that will. I think it's amazing to think of what what Matthew was isolating there by the words of Jesus is almost a Genesis 3 perspective of sin and rebellion. An idea that God in his goodness, in seeing Adam and Eve's failure, still calls people to himself by calling on them to believe and repent of their sins. So he's he's isolating almost the call from the beginning of our history of what man is to do. And by doing so, he, he allows us to focus on what the kingdom of God is by showing us who's in and who's out. 
Matthew is pretty careful in saying those who are in the kingdom of God are repentant people. And those who are out are just rebellious, rejectors of God's goodwill. And so moving into this second parable that Jesus has, three parables in a row, what we see here is a, is a really broad scope of history. where we, uh, This might be a way to categorize what is, what is being called for and talked about through all of the scriptures. And what are some of the particulars that are happening in the scriptures? It's amazing to think that through a parable, through something like an allegory or a metaphor, Jesus is telling people who are rebelling against him that the scriptures give a case for Christ as Lord. And not just that, they're not just talking figuratively, but the scriptures are giving a particular case for Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ, the Lord, the Messiah. It's amazing to see the context here is a bunch of people who are sinning against Jesus are now accusing Jesus as doing something that he doesn't have authority to have. So in the midst of a temple, scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, Sadducees, elders are seeing what Jesus is doing both in a couple of years past, but also in particularly this one week, a couple of days before Jesus' death, they're accusing him as acting a way that he should not be acting. And so they ask him, by whose authority are you doing these things? Which is amazing to think about in our perspective. They're asking Jesus, Jesus, by whose authority is he doing these things? Ultimately, he's going to reveal something to them that is mesmerizing to us and it captures our attention. When you think about owning something, what do you think about? Now, I own but a couple of things. And most of those things I share with my wife. So I actually don't own them, right? Like we have a house, but if you look at it, it's not mine. Or I have a car, she has a car, she doesn't like driving my car, which is okay because I don't like driving her car. So it's not really mine necessarily, but there are some things that are in particular mine, such as my books. And though she's never needed to tread lightly, there are just a couple of things that I own that do not go under a lamp. They certainly don't sit on the bookshelf for decoration because they are mine and I get to determine what I get to do with just a couple of things that I own. And when you think about these people are accusing Jesus and asking Jesus by what authority he's doing all these things, it blows our minds that they have the audacity to do that. I mean, this is the Lord of the universe, right? He's right now sitting on a throne, ruling and reigning over everything. And they're saying, by whose authority are you doing this as he stands in the temple? So here we get to see this, in my mind, this really cool picture of this focus of the kingdom, where last week we saw the kingdom of who's in, who's out, by their repentance. Here we get to see the kingdom of God in focus by who is ultimately in charge of it. The kingdom of God is Jesus's. The kingdom of God is just that, it's God's. And they're questioning who it belongs to. So I hope you can walk away this morning looking at this text, understanding that by accepting the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the chosen ruler and reigner over everything, that we can walk away seeing this as an answer to who we actually are in our sin and who we actually are in our need for a Savior. 
There are a couple ways I think God clearly presents what he's doing and who he is through this text. The first of those is God sending servants or God sent servants here. So if you're following along in the outline or you're a note taker, I've got a couple of points throughout the sermon that might help you pay attention or at least keep up with the pace of the scriptures. The first one is we see God acting and moving in this midst of Jesus being accused by showing these people in the temple, these leaders of the Jewish people, as God sent his servants. Look at verse 33 again. I'll read it. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get fruit. Verse 35, and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. What we see here is a pretty clear picture of a couple of things. There's a vineyard. There's an owner of a vineyard. There are tenants who are working within the vineyard. There's even things about the vineyard that ultimately shows that the owner is not only in charge of it, but also has created a pretty impressive vineyard. Things like a wine press there. That wasn't always the case, but it was a self-sufficient vineyard. The things like a tower that would just show the protection and power and care that the owner would have for everyone who's working in the vineyard. And even setting up boundaries around the vineyard in such a way that it would protect people from or coming in, but also protecting from dangerous things from coming in as well, like animals. And this starts to sound a lot like what we would read in Scripture in Isaiah 5 where there is a vineyard and it doesn't look like it's going well because Isaiah, the prophet, is talking about how things have gone awry. And it's through the sinfulness of man that the, that the vineyard has given itself over to sinful ways. And ultimately, it, it shows itself as giving away itself to uh, sinful ways by its fruitlessness. And so here we have a couple of parallels with just that. And these people who would listen, these Jewish leaders who would be practiced in the verses of the scriptures would know that something here is a little bit like something that they would have read and known before. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it, built a tower and leased it to tenants. So he's giving great care, this owner. And also he's showing great capacity to care for the vineyard. And ultimately, when it's time for the harvest, the owner is going to send servants towards the vineyard to basically claim the profits that the owner deserves and take it back to him. So he would have been far away, maybe in another uh, country on vacation. Maybe that's where he ultimately lives. But through the properties that he would have, he's now going to claim what is his and the profit of the vineyard. But as this parable starts to go downhill as we look at it unfold. We see that in the middle of the season of fruit, in verse 34, the tenants start acting ungodly towards those servants. Look at verse 35. It says, The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another, thereby showing the killing of these servants. It's a shocking portrayal here of Jesus using this parable to ultimately talk about Israel's corrupt leadership. So maybe in the crowd of a lot of people, he's speaking, I think, specifically to the, to the leaders of, of Israel, these Jewish leaders, and he's ultimately showing a case where they are acting much like this parable. They are taking from what was the Lord, both in property and in glory, 
misusing what was the Lord's, defaming the Lord and how they were practicing worship and how they were calling people to practice worship and who they were bringing people's attention to, ultimately showing their unlovingness, much like what was happening in Isaiah 5. Towards the outsiders, they were acting ungodly rather than loving other people. Overall, just showing a lack of godly attention and godly worship. And this is a pretty amazing in its, in its shockingness. The owner gave them this piece of land to cultivate, which would have allowed them to prosper at the same time. Right? They would have been able to make something of themselves by practicing in this vineyard, by, by acting as farmers. They might have even become wealthy off of it and been blessed by it. And ultimately, they kill servants by simply who are coming to collect what was the owner's. They beat one. They killed another. And they stoned the last one. But that wasn't the end of it. Look at verse 36. It says, And he, the owner, sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Twice servants were sent in packs. Now, ultimately, you, you might ask the question, why in the world would this owner send another group of servants into this fold if the first ones were not only pushed around, but killed and stoned to death? I mean, if I were the owner of this, of this vineyard and the first group of servants that I sent were they were acted that way against, I would have come with an army next time, right? Bazooka's blazing. Like, the money is mine. Ultimately, here, as we see this parallel, we see just another case of the Lord's patience and his mercy as, as he is portrayed as the owner in this case, sending servants who are coming to reap what was ultimately his, God showing himself to be patient and kind and merciful. So he sends another group and their wickedness and severity and pride knows no bounds even to the second group. It says that they were beat. The connotation here is that they were beat raw. Now, I think I've been punched twice in my life, both in sports. Both times I deserved it. You know, I, I played fullback in football and I wasn't a big fullback. So, so you kind of had to be a little bit more finagled than that, than what we normally do. So one time I just got socked in the face and it really hurt. And I was even wearing a helmet. I can't imagine what it would be like not deserving anything and to ultimately be beat raw. But then on top of that, these servants were also killed. The, the language there is a, is a quickening of the sword, just put away with. And then lastly, they were stoned. The Greek here is that they would have been stoned to death. This isn't a backyard brawl with a flag football game gone awry. Right? This is an assault on ultimately God's people. I remember a couple years ago, something that'll just never leave my mind. Uh, at the height of ISIS's control in some parts of the Middle East, they were producing these videos and sending videos out of what it would look like to actually stone someone to death. A lot of us have stomach for war movies, right? Because ultimately, we know in the war movie Pearl Harbor, Ben Affleck isn't actually being bombed right there, right? It's fake. But here we had an actual portrayal of people being stoned to death. The awfulness of this is something that words can't even describe. And here it was done again and again. Only because they were coming for carrying out the will of God. And what Jesus is doing with this parable 
It is, is he's setting up this parallel of the servants coming for what was God and them killing those servants as that's exactly what happened when God sent the prophets into the world. So in our state of sin, we are, we are needing the Savior to save us from our sins. And in God's goodness and kindness, he's sending prophets into those people's lives by telling them to keep their attention on the Lord. Prophets uniquely do a couple of things over and over again. I mean, there are some that look a little bit different than others. But ultimately, when you, when you have a prophet coming at you in the Old Testament, you know that someone is either about to die or about to be punished in some way. But ultimately, they're offered this, this package, if you will, of grace, of being reminded to turn to the Lord, to repent of their sins, that, that though they are wicked naturally, God is a good and gracious Savior, and he's wanting them to come to him. It's his desire that they would flee their wickedness and turn to him as their Savior. But ultimately, what the leaders did in our scriptures is they would kill those prophets, the context here is God, the householder or the owner, planted a vineyard, a place of blessing and promise and good covenant. And man got in that place of blessing and squandered and abused it and misused it, ultimately robbing the owner of what was due to him. Never giving him the glory of his name, never demonstrating this fruit of repentance or fruit of good life, and never showed a sense of righteousness And when God sent his prophets to you, Jesus is ultimately saying, one after another of those prophets were killed by men. Jesus is showing the wretchedness of man, especially within this Jewish leadership. These people who should know better. Like they should have welcomed the prophets of old. Thank you for reminding me. Now last week, I can't remember which service I told it in, maybe both. Where, where Brooke is really great in that she has these you know, scripture things around the house, like in the bathroom mirror. And it's such a wonderful thing to be reminded, no matter where I am in the day, of, of God's truth according to God's design. And, and it helps me refocus on the busyness of my own selfishness, on, on who is actually in charge. Not only in charge, but loving at the same time. Here are people who saw these prophets and did away with them. You know, historically, when we think about Isaiah, how did Isaiah basically die? He was sawed in half by a wooden saw. Jeremiah, thrown into a pit and stoned. Ezekiel, rejected and left for dead. Amos, having to run from his life. Zechariah, rejected and stoned. Micah was smashed in the face to his death. This is how God's people were treating God's servants. And Jesus would later talk about this in chapter 23 of Matthew. It says, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. That's the identity of the leaders who Jesus is speaking to. Murderous, wretched, awful people. And don't miss the context. They are questioning Jesus' authority. I mean, it's incredible to think about. Like, what are they doing? And they, it seems like, don't even know what they're doing. It later says in Matthew 23, verse 34, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of, you, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, 
outside of this when we think about what is happening here, both in the previous parable and in this one. We see that ultimately the kingdom of God is full of people who accept Jesus as the Savior. And you might look at this and go, all right, I'm not the best person in the world, but I've never stoned anyone to death. I've never killed anyone. I've never just beat anyone up. I, actually, the worst thing that I do is maybe run a red light. Or I might get a little mad after a while. Or when things aren't going my way, I show it by face, by body, even by words. What ultimately here is Jesus isn't separating this, this class of really bad people versus what you and I are, just sinful Naturally, Romans speaks to this so clearly. If you have time for the rest of the day, just go read about yourself in the book of Romans. Just who we are and how much we need the Lord to save us from ourselves, from our own sin. And remember the two sons that I spoke about last week. The first one, wanting, knowingly, openly, rejecting God in his ways, but turning towards him. And then the second one, who said that he would, have done, he would do the will of the Father, but ultimately doesn't do the will of the Father. The, the characters there aren't any different than you and I. But by what they do with what the Lord has given them actually shows whether they are in or out of the kingdom. So if you look at this text and, and just want to skip over it because it's like, man, those guys really have it coming. And good thing I'm not like them. The bad news is we are all just like everyone else in our sinfulness. That's the whole point of self-righteousness. The, the idea that you can look at someone else and go, they are way worse off than me. You've missed completely the idea that you actually have this mirror in front of you. The, the truth of scripture that shows you exactly who you are and exactly how much you need a savior. So ultimately what we see is God sent his servants to wake people up to call people back to God, to reclaim what is rightfully God, God's, and they killed him. Secondly, we see that within this story that uh, the Lord is not done speaking about what is happening. Remember I said that there's, there's this idea of all of history being portrayed inside this one perfectly packaged parable. Secondly, we see that God sends his son. God sends his son. Look at verse 37. And keep in mind when you're looking at verse 37, the, the tension that must be within this setting. He's just accusing these people of, of killing God's prophets and that he knows about it. Keep in mind the, the idea of what happens when a servant from God ultimately comes to God's enemies. Verse 37, it says, finally, he sent a son to them saying, they will respect my son. Another way to put it is, surely they will respect my son. Some of your translations might have, they will revere or reverence my son. Which isn't too far-fetched, right? Everyone loves everyone else's son. Like let's say you have a boss and you like your boss and the boss's son comes in the room. You immediately want to go and talk to them, right? You want to say, ah, oh, man, you're just like your dad. Chip off the old block. Like, ah, oh, I can see where you're balding just like him. I love you too. And even in the cases where we might not like a boss, we certainly initially respect the son, right? It, may, it might not be his fault that his dad is the way he is. He might, he might actually bring the company back. He might be the one who helps us, just having that initial sense of respect for them. 
And the father says that they will respect my son. Should be no surprise to us that the wickedness that will continue to take effect here. The parable is almost beginning to sound ridiculous. Unless portrayed against what has actually happened and now what will happen, it's amazing to think that, that this parable keeps going on. And this week, just thinking about this parable, I was, I was just you know, racking my brain and Googling everything about surely there's something that's happened politically in history that could align itself with this text. Or culturally, like there's got to be a Seinfeld episode about this somewhere. Or there's, there's surely a, a Disney movie that would have the evilness that seeps inside of this. And there's just nothing in the world that is quite like this, where the evilness of man and these leaders in particular are wrecking on the servants of God, but ultimately on God's son. Verse 38 says, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is their heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. They knew, these people, exactly who they were dealing with. It, it didn't just become an argument that got out of control. They knew exactly what they wanted to do when he came. They knew exactly why they were going to do that thing. And they would have executed it to the first degree. The murder is unquestionable here. This is no accident. These leaders, Jesus is saying and putting on them, these leaders ultimately hate Jesus. They hate him, and he knows that. And it's fascinating to think about this text in particular. Imagine being in their minds at this moment, understanding how parables work, understanding how things are unfolding, maybe even understanding, I think I understand the trail that he's going on. And also imagine the tension as the Lord speaks to them about themselves and saying not only how much they hate him, but how they are looking to kill him. Him knowing their hearts. Him knowing their desires. And this is nothing new in history. Not that this is in particular has ever happened before. But this is certainly spoken about. This is what's ultimately going to happen. There's going to be an apex of human history. And it's going to look like this. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says... He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus' ultimate and purposely, or Jesus ultimately and purposefully is offered for the sins of those who would believe. So when he's saying these parables, he's not just indicting them, but he's also showing us in particular that this is exactly why he came. He came to be an offering for his people. He didn't just come to, to serve and to show people what a good life looks like. He came, the perfect one, to ultimately lay down his perfect life. He knew he was going to be killed, yet he still acted the way he did. The, the grace overflows at this point when we see all the things that are coming together. And, and, and don't miss that just in a couple of days, they would have their day. And they would kill him. And they would hang him. And they would watch him die quickly. Questioning his authority, they stood in front of him. 
teachers adulterating his scriptures, leaders who make God's temple a marketplace, there they stood. These so-called shepherds are ultimately being wolves in sheep's clothing. And yet Jesus Christ stands there in front of them, the true fulfillment and climax as the one who is the people of Israel's whole longing for generations and generations from the beginning. There he stands. Why was he speaking in front of them? He was speaking in front of them for the reason of showcasing himself as the king by rebuking them for their sins and also to show himself as the Messiah. Showing himself as the Messiah as the one who would ultimately be rejected. And to keep in mind that Jesus here came for sinners. He came for sinners like portrayed in Luke 4 to proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And they are questioning his authority and his goodness and his reasons. It's staggering to think about the injustice that that we are watching. So I think one of the things that we can just take away from this is just this warning to not reject the gift of Christ that is very clearly in front of us. None of us can walk out of this room without knowing who Christ is because we can see him in the scriptures and because he reveals to us by he reveals himself to us by the spirit. Don't reject the gift of Jesus. Ultimately these men were doing just that. They knew better. They saw more. They would have recognized what was happening if they were attuned with the scriptures they would have bowed down in worship, but their hearts were so hardened that they were only people of rejection. So these leaders were ultimately questioned by Jesus. So he finishes his parable in verse 29 where the narrative portion ends. And so now he turns a question on them where he addresses the leaders. And no doubt there would be people standing around, wondering, listening, waiting for him. And he gives them a rhetorical question about what the landlord would do to his traitorous tenants. Look at verse 40. It says, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. I mean, a shocking answer. Now, it's not shocking because it was true. These are are wise people. These are well-schooled people. Of course, they knew the answer to this. They've seen parables unfold. They knew what ultimately would happen to these people. And it wasn't shocking because this indicts them like last week. What's ultimately shocking about this answer is that they are sentencing themselves here. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who give him the first fruits, who give him the fruits in their seasons. The outcome of what would happen to these wicked tenants is that the vineyards would be given up and leased out to new tenants. And the owner would rightfully destroy the wicked tenants. Here we see what truly happens when the Son of God comes for his people. God in his mercy desires his people. He desires their fruit. He desires their will to be carried out. And there is no way of a plan B because plan A is going to be perfectly executed. I remember when I was 10. I don't know how I remember this, but I remember when I was 10. I was in a Christian bookstore, and there was a book called God's Plan B. 
is the dumbest thing in the world I've ever seen for a book title. I really hope there's not a plan B. Anytime I need to go from plan A to plan B, it's because I'm not in control. Like if I go on a road trip, I need like four pair of car keys. I need extra socks, like a ton of socks. I need multiple maps. GPS is not going to work. The idea of having a plan B when the holy God of the universe is in charge is astounding. And here, this was foretold throughout the scriptures, that the Son would ultimately be the atonement for sinful people. The Son would ultimately pay the reparations for our sins. And the prophets told us to do exactly what we needed to do to repent of our sins and cling to God as our Savior. And the Son provides what was needed. He absorbs the wrath of God. He ultimately dies because you and I in our sin, we deserve to die. I mean, have you, have you ever been questioned by maybe a parent or a teacher when you've messed up on, on what they should do about it? I remember there was one time in third grade where it was, it was muddy and we were all playing uh, football during recess. And of course, you're slipping and sliding and then you start throwing arms around and people don't remember that you didn't mean to hit them. And all of a sudden a brawl breaks out and you're in the principal's office with 10 other people and they say, OK, what should, you get, what should happen to you guys? And you're like, I don't know, maybe we should call our mom and maybe get suspended. And they go. That's a good idea. He's like, oh, maybe we should just write, we shouldn't do this 20 times on a piece of paper. Ultimately, Jesus asks these wicked tenants what should be done. And they sentence themselves greatly. So here, God sends his servants in his goodness. And God sends his son. Ultimately, Jesus would offer himself up to be killed And then we see, thirdly, that God spoke through the scriptures. So he sent his servants, he sends his son for his people, and then he spoke through the scriptures. This is the climax of the text. This is where all of the tension seems to resonate, where it seeps to the top of if this goes one way, that it changes everything. And so Jesus says to them, after they say these things, after they sentence themselves, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? What a phrase to be asked. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. They're asking him, by whose authority are you doing these things? He paints this portrayal of exactly what he's doing. And then he says, have you never read the scriptures? And he talks about a cornerstone and a stone. And you might think that's, that's an interesting aside. Some of the things should ring true if you know what the scriptures are talking about there. This is calling on the words from Psalm 118. What's interesting about this is this is the same psalm that was talked about in chapter 21, verse 9, when, when Jesus was riding into town on a donkey, and they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And last week in the first service, I said very confidently that Jesus rode into town on a donkey, and they said, Hosea, Hosea. And no one corrected me. Until about 6.30 on Sunday night when my wife said, hey, just, just one thing about your sermon. You said that he rode in a town on a donkey saying, and they said, Hosea, Hosea. And the Bible doesn't say that. <laughs> I love Brooke. But there, are, there is never a time when I love her more than when she says the Bible doesn't say that. <laughs> she is quite the helpmate. 
So either way, they, they, he rides into town saying Hosanna, or they're saying Hosanna, Hosanna. The words there are the same from what is being talked about in Psalm 118, where it's describing Israel being saved. From these exclamations and emotions surrounded Jesus entering the city comes the words of Jesus to these leaders. And he speaks from the same salvation hymn, this same messianic word, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. God speaking through his scriptures about himself against his enemies for his people's goodness is quite the aside to be reminded of who exactly is in charge in this situation. The authority rests in Christ here. The cornerstone. The audience listening is self-righteous and unfaithful, wicked keepers of the temple, yet the message is Israel's Savior has arrived on behalf of the loving, patient Father. And Jesus is saying that the Son comes as Lord, and he's saying, I am the Son. I'm the cornerstone. Now, if you're not familiar with the cornerstone proper, uh, I grew up in a town where it seemed like um, the Masons built just a lot of public places. So that junior high that I went to has a cornerstone that had the Masonic Lodge label on it. The, the post office that I would go to was built by the Masons. The, the uh, city where the city council meets had there a cornerstone that was built by the Masons. And regardless of what you think about that, what that shows is there was something who placed that thing, in, who placed that thing right there. And the rest of the building would be built along the grid and the application for that cornerstone. So when you lay a cornerstone down, the rest of the building can finally take shape. So it's not just a scattering about. And the cornerstone is supposed to be immaculate and perfect. And you have to find the right one because it's supposed to last for hundreds and hundreds of years. You can always rework windows or replace a roof that you cannot replace the cornerstone. It has to be perfect. And the image here is that for a long time, Israel has been rejected. The people of God have been put out or pushed aside. Like like you're looking at different stones of which to make the cornerstone. You you toss one out. Ah, it's a little bumpy around the corners. Ah, this one isn't perfectly square. We can't make a building out of this. About a year and a half ago, I I did a, a couple of pieces of landscape in the house that we had in Oklahoma and so I went to the quarry where you buy a rock, and I didn't know what to do. And I'd just roll up in like a gray Malibu and be like, well, I need rock. I don't know what to do. And so you're ciphering through all these different stones, and you're putting one down. You're going, that doesn't look right. And you're putting one down, and then finally one fits perfectly to where I just knew people would drive by my house and go, that is the home of an amazing landscaper. Look at the rock match the house. The, the roof even shimmers without even Christmas lights. The carefulness that would go into having a perfect cornerstone is not something to be overseen. But here Jesus is saying that the one stone that all others would reject is ultimately being placed as the cornerstone by God. The one who the world tossed aside and said it's not good enough, it's not great enough, it has things that make us look imperfect. That's the one that God uses to plant and to build his full kingdom around. Jesus ultimately is saying that he is the cornerstone. And you might look at this and go, okay, Jesus is saying that he's the cornerstone, yet this Psalm 118 is about Israel. So 
so how is Jesus talking about Israel and, and he's one person? Ultimately, we see continually that the authority of God showing itself to us that from the beginning, God had a plan for his people and he was not going to be satisfied until the, his people would be seen in looking at their savior. And ultimately, Jesus is being thrusted out of the people of Israel as the true Israel. He's revealing himself as the savior, as the stone that was rejected, but ultimately is the cornerstone. Israel was supposed to be a beacon of hope to the world. A special people called out by God to be his true delight in Israel was supposed to be the apple of God's eye. We see this in Genesis 12. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. But the problem is, is that Israel couldn't keep her into the bargain. Her hope was to save herself by herself. And that was never going to work out. Now there's this huge old story about Israel that we could talk about for days and weeks and years and years. But ultimately for my case this morning is that according to the plan of God, there would be someone, a person, clearly in scripture, a man, a king, a priest, a prophet who would come from Israel and he would be the true Israel. And the one I'm talking about is clearly Jesus of Nazareth, the true Israel, the King of kings, the Messiah, the Lord, the one who says, I am. He is understood by everyone who is captured by the truth from God as the fulfillment of the angst of the scripture. He is the one who, from the beginning, who people of God would have been longing for and searching for. And they might have thought it would look like this person or that person or maybe this holy group of people, yet it was him the entire time. He, Jesus, is rightfully understood to be in reality, explained through this metaphor and by Psalm 118 to be the cornerstone. He is the one who the builders rejected. And they would reject him even days later. He is the one, according to the scriptures, even if they had read it, is the salvation of the people of God. And this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous because we can hope in him because he is perfect and majestic and holy in ways that you and I could never be and we could never save ourselves. And it's referred to and spoken about very clearly in other times of scripture. So 1 Peter 2 it's spoken about. It says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this should wreck fear into those who reject Jesus. Because within the kingdom, if you are not it is a wrathful place to live. And, and this is rich. If, if you're reminded of Ephesians 2, and it'll be up on the screens. Ephesians 2, verse 19 21, through 21. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So to conclude this third point, let me, let me say this. Conventional Jewish 
messianic hope is often focused on national deliverance. Yet Jesus here in this text, in this time, using the scriptures that speak about him, applies the truth of the Old Testament to himself as the Messiah. He is calling upon them to see him as the true Messiah who is bringing about spiritual salvation. Following closely on the heels of his triumphal entry, Jesus is deliberately acting the part of the king of Israel in this enthronement ceremony. And like his use of the figure of the son in the parable, Jesus employs the metaphor of the stone to draw attention to his coming fate, but also to his exaltation. And so no wonder the response of these leaders were so explosive. No wonder did they not just want to arrest him before, but they want to kill him now. So God sent servants and God sends his son and God speaks through the scriptures. And lastly, God separates the stubborn. We see God separating the stubborn here. Look at verse 43. Remember the scene, the prophets were plundered, the son was slain, the Christ is being declared as the Messiah, and now we get to see where the enemies are going to be told their reckoning of being executed. Matthew 21, verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Jesus here affirms the sentencing of the Jewish leaders that they gave themselves. I mean, truly a haunting point in history where he is, he is letting them set themselves up and they're in agreement of what is going to happen. 40, verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. By their own fruitlessness and sinfulness, Jesus says that all that God has offered to them will be taken away. But not just that. In verse 44, it says, The one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Bringing about this imagery from Daniel chapter 2, where this Christ figure, because no one could create him, and no one knew how he came about, yet he was fully there and has always fully been there, smashes the enemies of God. And he doesn't just smash it like you would in a video game, but it says that like from the chaff of the summer threshing floors, the wind carries them away. I don't know if you've ever sanded anything with wood, but after you go continuously, there's this dust on the floor. And if you're like me and you don't want to clean it up, you just open the garage door and there it goes away. It's a nice image, but it's haunting when that is what happens to the enemies of God, the, the smashing of the king of his enemies, and it's, it's like they wither away. These Jewish leaders, Jesus says, are going to share in Babylon's judgment. And they would have all feared that. So the lesson from this text is do not reject the son or you will be crushed. 
It's becoming more popular to reject Jesus. It, it brings you fame on Twitter. It makes you sound intelligent in college. It makes you say, well, I've searched the universe and I can't find him. And, and more than a high esteemed place in society, Jesus is saying when you reject him, there is a crushing offense and outcome that is coming for you. And the vineyard is taken away because of its fruitlessness. And the people of Israel are here promised to be joined by the Gentiles. It's, it's been pretty incredible to see God's grace and God's gift as we've been going through the book of Acts. Normally on Sunday mornings where you see God's grace continually expands and brings people in who repent of their sins and believe in him. And here, this is where the promise takes place in their eyes, the leader's eyes, that they will be removed as leaders and others will be brought in alongside. Others who are seeking the fruit of the Father, no longer the fruit for themselves, but are seeking God's will instead of their own. And so here we have the authority of Jesus being questioned. God takes the authority from these leaders and God gives his vineyard people. And you would think that this is where revival would take effect, right? The, the judgment that God is talking about. The judgment that Jesus is speaking about. This would, I don't know, if I was ever in a case of sinfulness and Jesus was speaking to me, I would stop at nothing to make sure that I was responding correctly. And yet look what they do in verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. What a haunting phrase. When he's speaking about judgment. To imagine that he's speaking about you. Verse 46, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now, ultimately, what's happening here is there's going to be three sets of parables. And then they, in their frustration, are going to try to trick Jesus by three huge questions. So what we see here is they see the, the sentencing coming, yet they're going to take a little bit and then they're going to come after him in a couple of days. Ultimately, what we should respond from this with is we need to, as Christians, rest in the sun as the cornerstone. The one whom the, the world rejects, we see as the Savior. And there's nothing that will give life and joy and contentment in our days any more than that. That, that God sent his son for his people and it cost him his entire life. That is way better than any of us can ever imagine resting in. We can enjoy Christ now because of what he did then. We can have union with Christ now that it far surpasses anything else in life. When we think about this passage, in, in zooming out, we see who is in and who is out with this parable and last week's parable. We can see that by repentance and faith you are in and by rejection and rebellion you're out and by accepting the Son for who He is, the true Israel, the Messiah, you are in and by rejecting Him. Well, you're going to be smashed to pieces and grinded away and the wind just sweeps it by. Tremendous parable where Jesus uses something so common, so understandable by the audience, where he talks about God sending servants, sending his son, speaking through the scripture, and sentencing and separating the stubborn. What we see here is the power of Christ. 
the control of Jesus, the command of everything that he shows. And he's being asked, by whose authority is he doing all these things that he's doing? In his answer, in showing us what the kingdom of God most greatly looks like, by whose authority is he doing all this? His. His authority. He's doing all these things because he is God of all. And so we can walk away from this text knowing that in accepting the Son, we have an answer to who we are. Not wanting to be where those wicked men, those wicked leaders are. We, God is calling us to accept him as the Savior and as the Lord. And we get to enjoy him forever and ever. It's amazing to think about. We talk, I talked about this last week. The idea of enjoying something forever and ever is euphoric. And it's actually ours by the way of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, by the Spirit waking us up, and all from the love of God. Jesus is being asked, by whose authority is he doing all this? And he says, his. And we should want to be on that side, because it is powerful and loving and good. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning amazed at the, the, the clarity that you have about your grace and your power and your wrath through a scripture like this. We ask that you would transform our hearts and cause us to rely on you and seek you. And may we not be like the tenants in this text who didn't understand what you said about yourself and what you have been saying about yourself for all time. That you are good, that you are gracious, that you are merciful, and that we must turn to you Father, we thank you for sending your son for us. And it's not lost on us that it cost him his whole life. But it's from your love that all of this comes to us. And may we have lives that respond in joy and in faith and in fruit because of it. Lord, we say all these things in the name of your perfect and holy son, Jesus. Amen.